Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. When my children were little, and they didn't want to hear what I had to say, when they didn't want to listen to me anymore, they would put their hands over their ears, and they would go like, la, 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 (laughs) la. I'm not listening to you. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Well, the same thing happened to Stephen. When the Sanhedrin did that to him, they put their hands over their ears, and they rushed at him, furious, grabbing him and dragging him out out into the outer parts of the uh, city of Jerusalem where they could stone him. And as they were doing that, because they didn't want to hear any more of what he had to say when he was accusing them of lying about him being a blasphemer, they picked up stones and they threw them at him. And as they were doing that, Stephen looked up into heaven, and he saw two things there, the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right side. It was a confirmation of everything that Stephen believed in. We're going to talk about that during this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. Well, it's good to be here, and uh, praise the Lord. We uh, Some get here easily and quickly, others take a while, and that's the same way in our lives, right? Some people come to the Lord quickly and early, and some take a while, but we all we all tie at the end. You know that parable is that, uh, you know, the first will be the last, and the last will be first. Well, what that really means is we all tie, right? If you're last, and but you're first, but you're first, but you're last, it means you tie. It means we all get to heaven together. So there's no winner or loser to the race. Whenever you come, you're welcomed in with open arms, and we all get to heaven together as saved Christians. So praise the Lord for that. Well, let's uh, let's have a quick prayer uh, before we start. Lord, dear Father, thank you so much that as we gather here together today that you are here. You are in control. You are speaking, dear Father. May we hear your voice today. May it be your word that we hear, and may it be all about you. We lift you up in our hearts and lives, and we lift you up in this hour, Lord, and we just pray that you would give us understanding and um, just a new appreciation for what a good God you are. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we had, I wanted to take over a little housekeeping uh, from last week uh, before we started today and the, the new stuff. And if you remember, uh, we talked about how, and we're going to read just a little bit of it today, how Stephen called these people stiff-necked. They were stiff-necked people. And we said, uh, you know, Dennis asked the question, well, where does that come from? You know, uh, we kind of had a consensus that it meant being stubborn and um, resistant and uh, that kind of thing. But but there had to be, you know, some something that they, in that time, would have associated that with. Like, you know, it's a, it's a picture of something. So sure enough, I did some research uh, this past week about wh- where did the origin, uh, the origination of this this idea of stiff neck come, come from? And I got an answer. And here's what it says. It says stiff necked. As it, as it is figuratively used, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the word means stubborn, untractable, not to be led. So we're right about that. The derivation of the idea was entirely familiar to the Jews, with whom the ox was the most useful and common of domestic animals. It was especially used for such agricultural purposes as harrowing and plowing. The plow was usually drawn by two oxen. As the plowman required but one hand to guide the plow, he carried in the other hand an ox goad, to goad the ox on. Uh, this was a light pole shod with an iron spike. With this, he would prick the oxen upon the hind legs to increase their speed and upon the neck to turn or to keep a straight course when, when deviating. If an ox was hard to control or stubborn, it was hard of neck or stiff-necked. Hence, the figure was used in the scripture to express the stubborn, untractable, untractable spirit of a people not responsive to the guiding of their God. So that's where it comes from, from the ox goad. And if you try to get that ox to go a certain way and he wouldn't, it was a stiff-necked ox. So these people were stiff-necked people. So uh, that's interesting, isn't it? So, But we were right in terms of the connotation of what it meant. So uh, today I wanted to start with a little story here in this commentary by uh, John MacArthur. And uh, he's one of those celebrity pastors, and he's on TV and radio and everything. And um, he's talking here about Stephen, and I thought he makes some good points, some of which we've made in in class. And so I thought this would be, as we're kind of beginning to wrap up Stephen, uh, this is kind of an interesting um, kind of of a a summary of many of the things that we've been talking about, too. So here's what he says. He talked about... Uh, the name of the, of the title of this chapter is The First Christian Martyr. And he says, In the spring of 1521, a Roman Catholic monk and professor of theology was summoned to appear before Emperor Charles V and the Imperial Council of the Holy Roman Empire. For the previous few years, Martin Luther had fearlessly criticized the abuses of the Roman Church. His criticisms had fanned into flame the long smoldering resentments of the German people toward Rome. Determined to put an end to the popular religious uprising Luther had sparked, the young emperor summoned him to Worms, where the council would convene. There he would stand trial, and if convicted, he faced execution. 
Luther's friend Spalatin, Spalatin warned him against going to Worms, although he had a safe conduct pass from the emperor. A century earlier, John Huss had been burned at the stake at the Council of Constance, his safe conduct pass notwithstanding. In reply, Luther wrote that he would enter Worms in spite of the gates of hell and the powers of darkness, even if there were, quote, as many devils in it as there were tiles on the roofs of the houses. He appeared before the council and refused to recant what he had written. He would take back nothing, he asserted, that his accusers could not prove wrong from scripture. So then he goes on, uh, 1,500 years earlier, a miracle-working servant of Christ stood trial for his life. Like Luther, Stephen stood solidly on the rock of divine revelation. And like Luther, his bold stand was to change the course of history. His speech, in his own defense, was a masterful recounting of Israel's history. In it, he ably defended himself and by extension, all Christians against the false charges that he had blasphemed God, Moses, the law, and the temple. Faithful evangelist Stephen then went on the offensive, closing his speech with a blistering denunciation of the Sanhedrin's hypocrisy. By so doing, he turned the tables on his accusers. It was they, not him, who stood convinced of, convicted of blasphemy. The concluding verses of chapter 7 record the last moments of Stephen's life. For unlike Luther, who was spirited away to safety by Elector Frederick the Wise of Saxony, Stephen was to pay. How many times are you going to hear about Frederick, Elector Frederick the Wise of Saxony, <laughs> uh, who spirited away to safety? Uh, 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 Stephen was to pay for his boldness with his life. It is a dramatic, moving passage. Although he was killed, Stephen was not the victim; he was the victor. Death merely ushered Stephen into the presence of his Lord. Most of the murdering mob would be, uh, with the notable exception of the young Saul of Tarsus, though they lived on, would perish eternally. A stark contrast between Stephen and his murderers weaves its way through this brief passage. So extreme is the contrast that it can be said to symbolize the contrast between heaven and hell. That contrast may be viewed from four angles. It is the contrast between being filled with anger and being filled with the Spirit, between spiritual blindness and spiritual sight, between death and life, and between hate and love. So that's where we are today. We've just finished up Stephen's defense of himself, and his uh, last week we finished up his accusations uh, towards the Sanhedrin, which were true in every sense of the word. And so today we're going to go into the actual stoning of Stephen. And I thought, well, since John MacArthur said we should look at it from those four uh, vantage points, let's do that today. So we're going to start, at, well, I'm going to start, we're going to be looking, concentrating mostly on chapter 7 of Acts, verse, uh, starting in verse 54, and we're going to look at it from those four things, filled with anger, filled with the Spirit, filled with uh, love, filled with hate, filled with life, filled with death, and, and those four things. So... Let's do that today and see where we where we get with it. So, okay. So if you have chapter seven of Acts opened in your Bible, let's just go back to the end of the because um, this is the really juicy stuff where Stephen turns the tables and does his pointy finger thing and makes his accusation against the Sanhedrin. He says in verse forty-eight. However, 
The Most High does not live in houses made by man, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. That kind of house, uh, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit, always, every single time, without exception. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You know, and here's this, you know, they're so familiar with Moses saying, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people, meaning, meaning the Messiah. And yet when the Messiah comes after waiting 400 years, they murder him. Verse 53, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And so you have blasphemed uh, the law. And uh, remember last week, I just want another piece of um, house, uh, housekeeping here, because I thought Jan made such a good point last week on the way home. Last week we were talking about how uh, one of the points that Stephen was making was that they accused him of blaspheming God and blaspheming the temple. And we said last week, you know, you can't blaspheme the temple the temple because the temple itself is not holy. The temple is made by hands. And so you worship the God of the temple, the presence of God in the temple, but you don't worship the temple. But these people had begun to elevate the temple as something to be worshipped. I made the comment on the way home. I said, it's hard for us to understand that today because it's such a foreign concept um, to worship the temple instead of the God of the temple. Because, you know, we would never today worship the church as something divine or there's some salvation attached to the church. We, we don't do that today. We worship God. We worship Christ. We worship, and, 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 the, 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 and uh, the church is only holy when God's people are there, and, then, and God is there because we are here. And Jen says, oh, you're not right about that, Greg. I said, what? <laughs> How can I not be right? I'm always right. And uh, she said, no, because people can still do that today. She made a great point. She said, there are people who come to church, not our church, not Kenwood. In other churches, there are people who go to church thinking that will be enough. That the mere act of going to church will get them into heaven. Uh, so they don't. They haven't accepted Christ as their savior. Uh, they they haven't made a profession of faith. They haven't asked for his forgiveness and for his, him to come into their life. But they come to church regularly. They might be there every single Sunday. And they come to church and they think, you know, coming to church is what I need to do to get to heaven. And it's sort of a lot better than those people who don't come to church. I'm going to come into church. And I said, you know what? You're right. And so if, if, you, if, if, people are, if, if a person comes to church thinking the mere act of coming to church will be good enough to get them into heaven, they're not worshiping God. They're not worshiping Christ. They're coming because they worship the church. Now, that, that is so true. I guess I was wrong. That we that is something that can still happen today. And then I said to her, my really smart thing, I said, you know, coming to church thinking you're going to become a Christian is like sitting in your garage 
then you're going to become a car. Right? You can sit in that garage all your life. You're never going to become a car. You sit in church all your life. You're not going to get to heaven. It's all about the God who's at church when you're gathered and Christ who is here when we are gathered. So we worship him. We don't worship the church. So anyway, I just thought I need to tell you that because that was so smart. I really like that. Okay, so here we are now, verse 54, and we're going to get into the stoning of Stephen a little bit. We may not finish, but we're going to get close. (laughs) We're going to get really close. But, hey, I've got good news for you. Okay, now let me tell you, this is the good news. You can all take a little breather because starting the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're going to set acts aside, and we're going to have a special Advent series for Christmas. So you can take a break. Once we get into after Thanksgiving, you can breathe a deeper breath. We'll take a little breather from Acts. We'll come back to it, but after the first of the year. But during uh, Advent, we're going to do a special Christmas uh, series. So that's coming up. So hang in there. We're going to get through this. Okay, so verse 54. Now this is the filled with anger part that MacArthur was talking about. The filled with anger. When they heard this, the Sanhedrin, they were furious furious, and gnashed their teeth at him. Wow. Now, we've seen that word furious before. If you want to turn back to Acts 5, Acts 5, uh, verse 33. Okay, now this is Peter talking to the same group. And Peter said, uh, verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men, for the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed, again, his pointing finger out, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand. (coughs) Okay, so here's Peter talking about Jesus being at God's right hand. As prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness to the sins of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Verse 33. When the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death, Peter and John. They were, it's the same word there that's used here, the same kind of fury. And the idea is that they were, it literally means to be sawed in half. Uh, we would colloquial, our colloquial was colloquial. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, right. Um, Would be to be cut to the quick, cut to the heart. Uh, They were just, you know, mad, crazy, angry. And they had wanted to put Peter and John to death. That's how angry they were. But do you remember why they didn't ultimately? Gamaliel? Yes. Right. Yeah. That if they're of God, then they'll continue, but if not, it'll die out. Right. So Gamaliel, who was the president of the Sanhedrin, came to their, in a well-respect, you know, whatever. We say, remember, what was that guy when he speaks, people listen? You guys help me with that. E.E. E. Yeah. Putnam? E.F. Yeah. Hutton. E.F. Hutton. E. Hutton. When, people, when he speaks, people listen? That's that. When uh, Gamaliel spoke, people listened. And Gamaliel stood up and said, whoa, let's just... Pull back here, take a breath, and he defended Peter. And then Peter and John were let go. But Gamaliel does not stand up for Stephen in the same the same fury, the same anger, the same everything, but Gamaliel's missing in action. What do you think happened to Gamaliel? Why do we defend Peter and not Stephen? 
Was he part of the Sanhedrin? Yes. Okay. Yep. He was the one that taught Paul. Yes. 22-3. Right. And he's the one who stood up for Peter and for John, but he doesn't stand up for Stephen. I think a couple of three reasons, maybe. One is maybe he wasn't there. It's possible. Uh, secondly, um, maybe he saw Stephen in a different way than he saw Peter. Uh, Peter being an apostle, Peter being, you know, the leader of the church in Jerusalem at that point. Uh, Stephen maybe, I mean, um, Peter maybe had a gravitas that Stephen did not have. Uh, so it's possible that Gamaliel was willing to put his neck on the line, so to speak, for a man of the stature and reputation of Peter, but not of Stephen, who didn't even, you know, he was a, a Grecian uh, Jew. He didn't even speak Hebrew or read Hebrew, as far as we can tell. Um, and then, of course, uh, Gamaliel was, you know, the Jew's Jew, just like Paul, Saul was. So it could be that he sees Stephen in a completely different way, and he's willing to help out on one, but not help out on the other. So that's possible, and it's kind of a warning to us, too, to, you know, <laughs> let's not treat people, you know, because someone has a certain level of whatever and someone doesn't, you know, we're even warned about that in the Bible, right? Don't treat people, don't treat the, don't treat the rich guy differently than the poor guy, right? Since he was young, with that he was young, yes, also possibly he was a younger man. Exactly. Very good point. Yeah, because Gamaliel at this time would have been an older gentleman. Mm -hmm. That's a good. Yes. Yep. That. Yep. So all of that is possible. And another and another option might have been that you know having stood up for Peter so recently, maybe he wasn't willing to stand up again a second time so soon. You know, I did it once. I better not do it again because I'm going to start looking suspicious to these guys, right? So it might have been fear that he didn't want to be seen in the pocket of the, you know, these new believers. He, he needed to keep, felt he kept, needed, needed to keep his distance. Whatever reason, they were so angry. And I find it interesting that he uses, uh, that Luke uses here, uh, that they gnashed their teeth. Where have we ever, where, when you think of gnashing their teeth, where else do you think of it? Yeah. Right. Jesus himself described hell as a place where there would be weeping or wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, I always thought <coughs> that weeping and gnashing of the teeth were one and the same kind of emotional reaction. That, you know, when people find themselves condemned to hell, they are... Uh, sad, and they are upset, and they kind of lose it. And so in their misery, in their pain, in their anguish, they are weeping and gnashing their teeth. That those two represented the same kind of emotion, you know, um, like, I don't know, salt and pepper. You know, they go together, you know, or but but they're the same thing, just, just a different level of the same emotion. But I don't think so. I have a, I've, diff, I've changed my mind about that. 
after reading this passage um, and thinking about it. Because gnashing of teeth here is anger. It expresses uh, that they were furious, like we said. <coughs> Cut to the quick. So if gnashing of the teeth represents being angry here, then if it's consistent, wouldn't it also mean being angry when we're talking about hell? Well, how can these people in hell be angry? You know, and then I thought, well, wait a minute. If we read all through the book of Revelation and other places in the Bible, in spite of Christ making himself apparent and obvious and evident and all the things that happen, uh, the Bible tells us that those who are unbelievers and are here on earth during that time, during the end times, during the tribulation time, they are angry with God. Now, there are a few who do come to the Lord, come to Christ, but by and large, most of the world's population that's still here at the time, they are angry at God. And I, so now I think when they talk about, when Jesus talked about hell and the people there weeping, uh, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think he's talking about two different emotions. I think the weeping is the sadness, the anguish, uh, the just depression that they have, the weeping that they are in this place, the weeping that they're suffering such agony and pain, that that's the weeping. <clears throat> but I think the gnashing of the teeth is they're angry. They're blaming God, even in hell, that they're angry with God and blaming him that he sent them to hell that he calls them to be in that place. Because they're never going to admit that it was them. I mean, the people of the Old Testament in Moses' day, it wasn't, it wasn't them, you know, it was Moses' problem. You know, uh, it, 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 they, you know it, wasn't, it, was, it wasn't their problem, it was God's problem, you know. Uh, and, in, and like I say, in the end times, it's not their problem, it's God's, it's God's doing it. And so why would they be feeling any different in the pit of hell? There's going to be weeping. They're going to be sad they're there and upset, and they're going to be suffering from pain and anguish. It's going to cause them to weep. But they're going to be gnashing their cheeks because they're going to be angry, angry and blaming God that they're there, that it's like his fault. So um, I think this passage helps to illustrate that in a, in a clear way for me. And I thought, oh, that's so great. I'm glad to learn something new there. So so that's that's my opinion of that. Okay, so... So that is the filled with anger part. Okay, so now let's find the filled with the spirit part. Uh, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up, and the idea of looking up there is in, with great intensity. He was intently looking up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So here is now the filled with the Spirit part. That uh, Luke wants us to know that Stephen was filled with the Spirit. And the idea there in verse 55, uh, does your translation says um, that uh, Stephen, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, do you have any other translation other than but Stephen? Does anyone have another word in there between Stephen and full? 
in your translation? Because actually in the Greek, there's another word there. Um, it's, but Stephen, being full. Do you have being? Okay, yeah. That's a better idea because if you just read it, full of the Holy Spirit, you might think that the Holy Spirit came upon, came upon Stephen right there at that moment. Right, that's not what happened. He is be, being full meant that he was already full of the Holy Spirit. And the idea of it, remember, let's go back just real quick to uh, chapter 6 in Acts, verse 5. It says, the proposal about having some leaders of the church to help out, remember, how this whole thing started. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And so here he is again being described by Luke as being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the idea there is that he was always, once he became a believer, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's the way he always was. It was, it was a way of life that he was known and recognized as being, being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the way he conducted his life. He was always like this. And Luke contrasts that being filled with the Holy Spirit that Stephen was to what we just hear up there. You stiff-necked people, uh, just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So there, the contrast between being filled and not being filled with the Holy Spirit and the difference that it makes in your life. So when they got to this point in verse 54, the Sanhedrin looked at Stephen, and they saw death. Stephen, at this point, knowing that he was probably at the end of his rope here, he saw life. Anger is a death thing. Being anger is see, you know, seeing red, you know, seeing blood, seeing death. Anger is deathly. But being filled with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, you have should have a different reaction. Now, we're all human. We all get angry. But it needs to be tempered with the fact that, you know, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. We don't want to see death. We want to be like Stephen. We want to see life. Because what did Stephen see? Stephen saw God, the glory of God, and Jesus. And so he had a, you know, he was able to see life instead of death. Chuck? Something I heard in the last week or so, not sure where, but we were talking about anger, and one of the fellows said, I believe that God would have us say that we, if God isn't angry about it, we shouldn't be either. Mm. I thought that was pretty, pretty strong. That's really good. Yeah. That really is. I've been doing a study in Matthew, and we're on the Beatitudes, and where... Jesus talks about murder, but that it is anger. Mm. To a, if you go back to the Beatitudes, mm -hmm. there's a verse right there that that says murder is anger. Mm. Well, so often murder starts. You know, the anger is the anger seed. Is the anger is the seed, seed, and murder is the the fruit of that seed. Mm -hmm. You know, so. And that's that's really good. Murder and killing. Oh sure, absolutely. Police can kill, soldiers can right, kill. Right, right. They're not committing murder unless they're exactly. Angry with exactly. 
And so here we are, and um, we uh, see that Stephen says, you know, he looks up intently into heaven, and what did he see? He saw two things. He saw a glimpse of heaven. He, he, God granted him at this moment, at the end of his life, a glimpse into heaven itself. I mean, that's an amazing thing. And um, I mean, it's a miracle. And when he looked up into heaven, he saw two things. He saw what? Well, he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus. That's two separate things. And so the glory of God, and the idea of the glory of God was this was what's known as the Shekinah glory. This, you know, no one has seen God, right? Uh, but we have seen uh, a representation of him. So in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, right, they saw a representation of God, which was the flame, the pillar of flame that guided them, and you know the the at night and the and the pillar of was it dust or yeah. hmm? was cloud. cloud yeah so that was a representation of God to them in the Old Testament and uh, but generally throughout the Bible the representation of God is this brightness this shiny that they call it the Shekinah glory this just overwhelming brightness and shininess and this thing that overwhelms us, that that represents the presence of God. And so that is what Stephen saw. He looked up into heaven, he was given a glimpse of heaven, and he saw this Shekinah glory of God. And then he saw Jesus standing where? At the right side of God. At the right side of God. So here he sees Jesus bodily. He sees Jesus whom he recognized. He saw Jesus at the right hand of God. And... Guess what? Stephen was the, I'm going to say second person probably, the, the, the second person to see Jesus post-resurrection exalted in heaven. The first person being the thief at the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. So the thief saw Jesus first in his resurrection, ex exaltation in heaven. But Stephen was the next person who saw it. And he saw it before Peter he saw Jesus in that way before Peter saw him, before John saw him. So that shows you the way that that God endorses what Stephen was all about and what Stephen said and who Stephen was, that he gave Stephen this wonderful, miraculous blessing of being the second person to see Jesus in his exaltation after his resurrection in heaven at the right side of the Shekinah glory of God. Uh, what an amazing, miraculous thing. And, you know, it was kind of a confirmation for Stephen at his death that everything he had believed was true. So here is Stephen. He's made this great defense He's pointed his finger. He's made this accusation. Now they've come after him with their fury and gnashing of teeth. He knows his, his you know, he only has a few minutes probably left to live. He looks up intently into heaven, and God reveals, hey, Jesus is there. Just like, he, just like Peter said he would be there. Just like he said he would be there. And so at this very moment of death, just moments before his death, his death Stephen is given this assurance and this confirmation that everything that you believed 
to be true was true, is true. And we're going to have the same kind of experience, you know, because as we pass someday from this life to the next life, we're going to have that same confirmation. We're going to have that same confirmation that everything we believe to be true was true, is true. And uh, the thing about it that I, I think sometimes we forget or we lose track of is because, you know, we think of death as such an awful, terrible thing. And sometimes getting to death can be awful and terrible. We have cancer and all these diseases and so forth. Getting to death can be awful and terrible. But death itself is not. And uh, I think too often, because we're on this side of it, and we see death, death itself as this terrible, awful thing, that uh, we need to be reminded that it's really not as a believer for us. Uh, that just like Stephen looked up and saw Christ exalted uh, and soon to welcome him in, that everything he believed was true, we're going to have that, at the moment of death, we're going to have that same kind of experience. And we're not, and there's no in between, okay? For us as believers, there is no death. We call it death because we're on this side of it. And the person that we know ceases to live here in this human body. But we never cease to live as believers, okay? We go from this life immediately into the next life. So I like to use this example. When I was a kid, I loved riding on an escalator. I loved riding on an escalator. I don't know why. It was so cool, you know? You're on this floor of the store, and you get on the escalator, and you ride up, and you get off. You're on a whole new floor! A whole new floor. You're on that floor, and you go up that floor, and you're on this floor. It's all brand new and new, a whole new floor. So that is what it's going to be like for us. We're on this floor of life, and we're going to go on an escalator as we approach death. And then at the top of the escalator, when we die, we're going to get off into a whole new floor. <laughs> so we go from this floor, which is earth and heavenly body and life, and we go up the escalator as we approach death. You know, we're going to get closer and closer to death. And when we get to death... A new place, heaven's floor. So there will be for us, no, there's not even a moment, not even a hint, not even a twinkle of an eye. You go from this living to that living. I mean, I'm not anxious to get there, but I kind of like this life. But when I do, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to go. I'm going to go be good at the end. So, so that's what we do. But I want to point out this because I think it's important to see how the Sanhedrin must have heard this. So when they, uh, and eventually we'll get to where he actually says this is what's happening, but I'll bring it up now. So he, he, so he sees, and he says later, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So we just saw, right, in the, the passage just before this, where Peter said the exact same thing. He said, uh, you know, a God, uh, a God of fathers hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand. So Peter said it. But he wasn't the only one who said it. Let's go back to Matthew. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, okay? Uh, Matthew 26, and I'll start here at 62. Um it says, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? 
what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? This is this at the end, right, where they're they're trying to find a reason to uh, kill Jesus. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man. They know that he's talking about himself here. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in clouds of heaven. You will see the Son of Man, me, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, of God. So these same people heard Jesus say that he is the Son of Man, and he would in the future be sitting at the right hand of God. And now here is Stephen, who is looking up into heaven, and he says, you know what? That what Jesus said would happen, that he would be sitting in the future at the right hand of God? Guess what? He's there. I see him. That's exactly what happened. And so these people have no choice now. If they killed the one who claimed that he would be sitting at the right hand of God, saying that that was blasphemy worth death, and they had to do it to the man who the man who they saw as a man who claimed that he would do that, then they still have to they have to kill the man who says that it did. They had to kill the man who said it would happen. They had to kill the man who said it did happen. And so that's kind of seals Stephen's fate right there. Chuck? And another really great point there is, it seems like everywhere else in the scripture, it's God sitting at, Jesus at, sitting at the right hand. Here he's standing. Right. And I've heard where he possibly was standing there for Stephen to give him a hug when he came up. Amen. Yes. So here he's standing, isn't he? He's not sitting. So he's standing to say, you know, to Stephen, I see what's going on. I know what's going on. I care what's going on. And like Chuck says, I'm waiting for you. I'm, you know, you're going to come to me soon. I'm going to give you that, that big hug in the heaven. Hug the big hug in heaven. We're all going to get that big hug in heaven. That's probably going to, that's going to be a good, good thing, isn't it? So, okay. So that's where we are. So let's just go and do one more verse here, real quick. So, uh, so here we go. Uh, verse 56. Look, Stephen said. He said, "I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God." So that is exactly now. Now. And so what do they do? Look at this. Verse 57. At this, they covered their ears. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. I mean, like children, right? They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Can you can you just see that? These grown men. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to listen anymore. I don't hear. I'm not going to. They're just like children. Just like children. And... Uh, the, the reason was because, I think I mentioned last week, the more Stephen spoke, the more guilty they felt. And they finally got to the point they just said, shut up. I don't want to hear it anymore. I, can, I can't take it anymore. I can't, I can't deal with this. I can't f- feel any more guilty than I already do. Interestingly, um, this word rushed was used somewhere else in Scripture. You know I'm going to love this. So let's go back to Matthew again, chapter 8 this time. Matthew 8, we'll conclude with this today. Matthew uh, 8, verse, uh, okay, I'm going to start with verse 28. Matthew 8, 28. When 
Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd, what? Rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. That's the same word used, rushed there, that was used here for the fact that the Sanhedrin, covering their ears at the top of their voices, rushed at Stephen. So these unclean pigs filled with demons rushing out of control down this hill, this cliff, into the water and drowning the pigs. This is the same kind of craziness that the uh, Sanhedrin was, when they, the same kind of emotion and feeling that they had in rushing Stephen to grab him to be stoned. They were out of control. They had literally lost it. That's how angry and upset that they were to be on that kind of out-of-their-mind level. Can, can, have you ever felt that kind of anger? I think we all have, haven't we? Just to be out of our mind with anger about something. And yet the idea there of, I want to get back to a minute, of the gnashing of their teeth is the idea of, of pain uh, that the weeping part we talked about has to do with. Because I think that anger uh, comes from a, sometimes a place of pain that uh, sometimes we can feel so guilty or so upset or such pain that we have this response that's guttural, that is anger. And we can be just like those pigs were out of their minds because this, the demons had entered them and they rushed down out of control, that we can sometimes do things that are kind of out of our control when we get to that point. And so... Uh, we need to learn to deal with our anger, don't we? Uh, because Stephen could have been angry. Stephen could have been angry at these people. He could have been angry at God. And yet, because he was being filled with the Holy Spirit, he had a completely different, and because he had a different reaction to them, I think that's partly why God revealed heaven to him, is because he he never felt that to and that all the stuff that was going on, he never felt that way. Uh, as a matter of fact, we'll find out in a, next week when we talk that you know he, like Jesus, spoke and said, "Father, uh, do not hold this sin against them. Uh, forgive them, for they don't know what they do." That Stephen says the exact same thing. And so to have that kind of spirit about you, the spirit of God within you, needs to make you different in life at the moment of death, and even when you have every right in the world to be very angry and upset, like when the flying pig doesn't let you get to church on time, that you need to calm down and realize God's in control. It's going to be okay. And you have a Sunday school class that can get along without you for a little while. So so lesson for today. So, yes, Dennis. A couple quick Jim and I were talking, whispering back and forth. Great. Um, we, we don't know for sure that Gamaliel was there, but we assume that he was. We don't know, right. I mean, it, his name is not listed again as the leader of the Sanhedrin. Uh, but I do see the point uh, where the uh, anti-non-Jew 
uh, as Gamaliel expressed to John and Peter, uh, would not be in play here. Uh, but it's just a, it's an interesting point, I think. You're thinking Gamaliel stuck up for those that were of the Jewish faith, but not Stephen. Hebraic Jews, yeah. Hebraic Jews, not Grecian Jews. Yeah, yeah. we're not we're not told that yeah. uh, either way. But it, it, I mean, it makes sense. But uh, I want to hold judgment on it. <laughs> but it also goes back to at the very beginning of chapter six, where the whole problem was that the Grecian widows were being treated unfairly. And so the Grecian Jewish men came and said, hey guys, and we said, we don't know if it was on purpose, probably not, but there, there very possibly might have been a certain way you looked at Hebrew speaking and reading Jewish people versus Greek speaking and, and, and reading people, and maybe not even consciously, but subconsciously, but there was some kind of a difference in the way they were being treated. And so certainly Gamaliel, not even being a believer, would certainly have held that position very possibly. I mean, my, my logically. Thought, my other thought is uh, after uh, about the uh, Sanhedrin being angry at what they were hearing. Uh, we've watched a lot of television where my pet peeve is to hear someone say in surprise, oh my God. Mm. And, and it just, I cannot tell you what that does to my spirit when I hear that. Amen. Um, I can tell you what he says. <laughs> no, you <it> wasn't. <laughs> but but I, so I can understand that these guys who are in what they consider to be the supreme position of God's defender, on hearing those words that they thought up to this point was uh, inappropriate, that they could be angry like that too. All the, of course. Absolutely. My anger. <laughs> You're not rushing at them. I don't know. No. <laughs> I don't like to see the OMG thing, you know, when people do that, you know. I, I mean, it's almost a natural expression, yeah. and it just right. irks me. And little kids use it too. No, I know. When I hear it everywhere. But Gamaliel, the last time he stood up to, you know, help that cause out, they were at a meeting. Yes. Right here, they're already rushing and, and gnashing and everything like that. Even if you were here, they may not have listened. That's very possible. You know, once once the once that uh, snowball starts going downhill, uh, sometimes yeah. you can't stop it. You know, so that's very possible that that Probably is. Even that's very possible. But just that fury and that 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 anger is just incredible. So. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.